Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to A Healthy Obsession, the podcast covering soccer culture from around the world. I am your host, Adam Thelwell, and as always, the show is brought to you by Small Goal Soccer. Today, I had the pleasure of welcoming Mr. John Arnold to the podcast. John is a sports journalist based in Texas. He covers North American football as well as Central American football. The man is basically a walking encyclopedia. We're going to be talking Mexican football. We're going to be talking about the MLS, but more so football culture at large in the region it's really interesting lots of fascinating insights from john and his experience covering the game we're going to dive into it now enjoy share rate review and thank you as always for listening and being part of our community it is my pleasure to welcome mr john arnold to today's show john how are you mate I'm doing as well as you can living a pandemic, I think. Uh, I'm okay, I'm healthy, and, uh, and we have some football back. So things are, are looking up for now. It's, it's nice to have some football back. It was definitely a, a big gap, in, I think, in everyone's lives involved in the game when there was no, no football going on. So what, what's changed for you just kind of coming out of a time when there was no football and now kind of getting back into uh, a new world of football, if you will, without being able to go to games and, and doing journalism from a distance? Yeah, well, <laughs> a lot has changed for me, but it was sort of half pandemic, half my own choice. Uh, you know, people might know me from writing at Goal.com for six years, uh, covered Mexico and, and the CONCACAF region in English and, and dipped into some MLS and U.S. soccer and even some, you know, La Liga, South America, that kind of thing. Uh, but I decided to leave Goal and put in my one month notice uh, around Valentine's Day, February 14th, February 15th. And then, it, it, you know mathematicians are doing the math and realizing, well, your last day was somewhere around the Rudy Gobert day where the NBA got shut down, which is exactly right. That was essentially my last day working at goal. So I started freelancing in the midst of this pandemic and it's good to have games back because it means people are paying me to write about soccer again, to be honest. Although, you know, my forte and my specialty is much more the culture around the game, uh, things that are happening off the field. So there were still some things to be said for sure uh, during that time as well. But uh, it's been interesting. Uh, I certainly would say that others have had it far worse, obviously, with, with tragedy, health issues, et cetera, losing loved ones. But uh, I did pick the wrong time to leave a job, it turned out. But uh, it's okay. <laughs> we're making it through. Yeah, that, definitely. And we'll dive into a little bit more about what you're currently up to. But take us back just to kind of the beginning of, of growing up and getting into soccer. Like, what was your introduction to getting into the game when you were younger? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think people are always kind of surprised when I talk about my sort of formative experiences in soccer because. Uh, even sports, you know, my parents don't like sports. You know, every Father's Day, you read the story about uh, my dad got me into the game or, or when someone's dad passes, they have those memories of baseball, et cetera. My dad was like a grudging uh, viewer of sports. He's still with us, still is a grudging viewer of sports. You know, I think he's the only person that knows what CONCACAF means that doesn't ever watch a minute of CONCACAF just because he follows my work. You know, he's, he, uh, he reads the newsletter. He's, he's a proud, proud father, it seems like, but, uh, but not, not into the actual, does, does not care what happens on the field at all. So um, I fell in love with the sport in some ways through MLS. Uh, I, I grew up in Northeast Kansas until I was about 11 years old. And so I went to a Kansas City Wiz game in 1996, the very first year with my grandparents, just to get me out of the house, I think. It's about an hour from, from where I was from to Kansas City. 
And then later uh, saw the 1998 World Cup and thought, wow, that was really interesting. That was cool. And in 2002, I was really into staying up late to watch every single game. Um, and that's when I kind of realized like, oh, these guys are doing something that's not happening every four years and started to kind of explore the club game again, with much of my education coming locally, because, you know, on US TV at that time, even back in the early 2000s, the only thing you could really find was your local MLS team and Mexican games, because Univision was still showing, they didn't have Tulane back then, they didn't have the, the specific sports channel back then that was only on cable, you know, you get the broadcast uh, Univision games, you know, Sunday afternoon Puma, Saturday night America, you had a little rhythm there. And, uh, and so that's where I started watching MLS and the Mexican League and really started to fall in love with the local game and, and, and getting into to everything that went with that. So that's how I got started. I, I am not a player. You know, I, I do play pickup now. When, again, when it's not a pandemic, I'm terrible. Uh, you don't want me on your team, I promise you. But uh, <laughs> I have fun with it. But, but I do think I could have been a better player had I started, you know, when most kids start at age five, six. But... Uh, I was playing other sports like I, like so many American kids, right? I think now soccer is seen as more of a viable, you know, quote unquote proposition. But uh, but yeah, it just wasn't in the cards for me. So um, that's that's kind of my journey is I've always been more of an observer and and a big fan of the local game as, as I think my work pretty clearly reflects. Yeah, definitely. So did you get, uh, was there a moment like when you were watching games or getting into soccer that you, you chose that you wanted to pursue a career in journalism and writing around football or were you already interested in journalism prior to that? Yeah, I wanted to, I've always wanted to be a sports journalist. I think you hear a lot of stories as well about the kind of failed athlete sports journalist who kind of realizes uh, I'm not good enough to make the high school team or I'm not good enough to play in college, I'm gonna write about sports. But I started reading at a pretty young age and started reading my neighbor's uh, old sports illustrated and got into you know narrative sports journalism at a really young age. Uh, some of the greats, S.L. Price, uh, you know, Grant Wall, uh, before he was writing soccer even, you know, uh, a lot of these guys were, were, were huge formative, even Rick Riley before he got not as good, uh, were big formative influences on me. Yeah. And, uh, and I always just wanted to tell those stories that stick with people, stories that make people uh, think a different way or, or feel something that they haven't felt before or just learn something new. Those are still the stories that I strive to tell, but I always wanted to tell those stories. And I just found as I grew older, first of all, I fell more and more in love with soccer. But I also think that soccer lends itself to those kinds of stories much better because so much of what we love about soccer is culture. So much of what we love about soccer is politics. So much is music, right? And, and I'm a big fan of those things outside of sports. But when they intersect with sports, I think it's the most fascinating. And I'm not just talking about, you know, Megan Rapinoe kneeling for the national anthem or getting into a, a, a Twitter war with Trump. You know, I think there are much more subtle things that, that happen, even in the way that a team plays. You know, Mexico plays in a different way from the United States. Why? Digging into those questions, I think, is the most fascinating thing. And I think that you find in soccer, those stories occur so much more often than they do in the NBA or the NHL or, or any other kind of traditional American sport. So I always wanted to tell stories. I always wanted to tell stories about sports. But what attracted me to soccer and what's made me kind of want to continue in this line of, of working specifically in soccer is just that element that I think you find in soccer so much 
you feel it so much more strongly than other sports that this is global, this matters. And this goes far beyond the 90 minutes. So that's where I really wanted to tell soccer stories. Yeah, definitely. And, and anyone that knows you knows you, you cover North American football uh, for the most part. I'm sure you do other bits and pieces as well, but that's like kind of the bread and butter is the North American piece. So the, the Mexican soccer portion of, of what you cover, what, what do you think is the special part for anyone that doesn't know a lot about Mexican soccer and the league there? What, what do you think some of the unique pieces of the, the Mexican league that make it up? I think it has a little bit of everything. I mean, it really does have a rich history. It goes back more than 100 years you're talking about clubs that some of them were founded by uh you know miners in the case of like pachuca you know miners who came over for silver and british miners and they taught the game they brought the game to north america you know i, I went out to uh, a little town outside of pachuca and saw where supposedly the first ever match in north america took place and it was you know two teams of miners i think it, you know like the legend is a bit obscure but it seems like it might have been kind of miners versus locals I don't know. they would have had an unfair advantage if they never if the locals had never played before they would have had to mix the teams or else it would have been you know 28-0 or something but uh you know so so there, there's that rich history that blends with the current culture and the relevancy of, of mexican football and then you have the style, which is just a little different. I mean, I've, I've compared it to an NBA game before where kind of one team has an opportunity to score. They maybe miss, maybe take a good shot, hit, you know, get a goal or, or force a save. And then typically the other team goes, you know, if you have a strong defensive midfielder in the Mekis, you're often a very good team because uh, there's not a lot of uh, midfield battles, I guess. You know, you're, off, you're often seeing a lot of exciting football, a lot of attacking chances. Uh, and then I think just the pageantry that goes around it, you know, the stadium atmosphere is is vibrant. The, the, even within different cities, you see different expressions of that, whether it be fan groups or the food and those kind of things. It's it's uh, it really is kind of something that I think draws in uh, the neutral. And there's also the fact that it's just the best league in, in the region that I love and in the region that I cover. And um, that doesn't hurt either. So I think all those things kind of come together to make it. So it's it's the league that I'm very fond of, that I love, and and hope to continue covering. And sort of, it's weird because it's not my my my. I'm not I'm not Latino. I'm not Mexican, but I do feel like I'm sort of spreading the gospel of this league, being one of the the few people, unfortunately, that's that's given sort of a platform to cover it in English. But it's fun. It's great. Like everyone should watch it. <laughs> it's a little bit difficult right now. There's you know like some COVID situation that they're still trying to figure out. They don't have a bubble, but but typically it's a great watch and and it's something where you know that's another reason I got into telling these stories is I feel like there's a, a level of ignorance in a way. Um, I don't use that word like pejoratively, but I just think people don't know about like Leon played LAFC in the CONCACAF Champions League this year. And I think very few people could have told you about Leon, which is a shame. They've been a lot of fun to watch over the last few years. And when you talk about like the European Champions League, you know, when Manchester United is drawn against Real Madrid or something, everyone knows about both teams. So why is it different here? I, I, I truly don't quite understand why there's sort of a lack of interest. And I think that, you know, I'm trying to so, in some ways bridge that gap and tell people this is how Leon plays. This is what this is what Guanajuato, the state that they're in, is about. And this is why you should care. You know, I think that we were used to those stories. So it's weird to me that for some reason, when it comes to Mexico, a lot of fans in the U.S. say, nah, you know, I'm not interested 
a lot of fans are tuning in, right? It's the most watched league in the U.S., but so many people dismiss that saying, oh, it's just Spanish speakers. But it's not. Uh, it's not just, you know, monolingual people, too. It's bilingual people, Mexican-Americans who have grown up here, who are your neighbors, who you should hang out with. Maybe you're already hanging out with them. You just don't talk football with them. You know, it's, it's, uh, it is a bit of a puzzle to me. But I guess I, I will sort of reluctantly wear this, this I don't know, crown, not crown, uh, this title of, 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 of spreading the gospel of leading yeah. Yankees. <laughs> yeah, def- definitely. So, uh, and as a journalist, you have to remain somewhat neutral, I guess. But have you got a team that you would uh, like have as a preferred team down there that you like to go and watch? Or maybe the match day experience is, is uh, the favorite for you? I used to, I mean, I lived in Tijuana, right? So I, I have a, a soft spot for Cholos. But, you know, when you're a journalist, oftentimes you kind of, getting closer sometimes makes you push away. You see mm-hmm. things on the inside and you're like, ah, I don't know about that, right? Yeah. Um, but it's a great trip, right? And it's really easy for U.S. fans to make it. So I think it's a good team for U.S. fans to adopt. I also really like, I like Leon. It's a great, great city. And then I like Pachuca just because of what they do, what they stand for, their projects. They, they are known for developing young players. They're known for having a really uh rich history of player development and like i said kind of the birthplace of the game in north america so i definitely feel uh a strong a strong tie i guess Uh, it's cool to be there and kind of be around that history i heard you talk once on a a different show about the uh, i think it was the miners of like uh cornwall had bought like pasties and that's still like a thing people eat in pachuca is that right that's absolutely true yeah you still see (laughs) the pasties and, and they have the Mexican twist because you have like, uh, you know, the, the, the different meats and fillings a lot of times are yeah something that you would you would put on a taco or something like that. So it's it's it's, you know, one of those stories of cultural mixing, right, of, of just people coming together and, and sport bringing them together in a lot of ways. But like I said, you know, if they don't play football together, who knows if they they adapt as well to the cuisine? I, I don't know. Right. So um, it's still definitely prevalent down there. And and uh and you can you can find them in, in over there in Pachuca. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really cool. So, uh, and like a lot of people I know, and a lot of people I come across, they they travel for football, right? So they'll go to, you mentioned there, like they'll go to Real Madrid or Barcelona or Liverpool or Manchester United. They'll fly to Europe on these trips and go to a game. Do you see that going the other way? Do you see many Americans going down to uh, Mexico to watch matches on a, a like you know? I always wonder like why why don't we fly down to Guadalajara and watch Chivas play and spend a weekend in a different city and enjoy it. Do people do that or is that something that's not really very common? I'll tell you what, I think Mexican-Americans do it. I think a lot of people, you know, there's a huge fan base for the big teams here in the U.S., right? Chivas has a fan base that I would wager to say is as big as some NFL teams in the U.S., right? There's a huge, huge fan base. But the thing is, they are speaking, a lot of them are speaking Spanish, right? And so people go, but I think a lot of times it's, it's people who we, for some reason, segment off in our sort of football culture, if you want to call it that, right? We say, well, you know, Americans get up in the morning and they watch the Premier League, but they don't tune in at night. No, millions of people are watching Liga Mekis at night, but, and those are the same people that, tra- that are traveling for games. But as far as, you know, your, your English speaker, you know, grew up in Kansas like I did or, or Midwest that doesn't have roots to Mexico, it seems like it's not happening as much. And I get it. It's also more expensive, you know. Travel, while it's accessible to Americans in a lot of ways, it's also more expensive than it is in, in, in the UK to hop a Ryanair and, and get a hostel for the weekend. You know, that stuff isn't really as prevalent in North America. So, um, you know, you're, you're talking about a significant investment as well. So I do get it. I understand why there's not as much maybe motivation. And then Champions League is during the week. So you got to take off a couple of days of work. But, you know, I think we're going to see as that tournament continues to grow, 
I think well, hopefully, knock on wood, you know, if we get a vaccine and, and, we're, and we're rolling again uh, post-coronavirus, uh, uh, I think we'll see that continue to grow. You saw LAFC have a great numbers in Leon. You've seen other fan bases, even more difficult places to travel like Honduras, uh, you know, when Olympia makes it through and stuff. So I'm optimistic that you're going to see that portion of our culture evolve. But I think it is just a little more difficult here because of the distances, the prices involved. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a lot of ground to cover if you're a supporter. And, and do you think that there's this talk, I've seen it mentioned a couple of times of the North American teams going down to uh, compete in South America. Do you think that will ever come around or do you think that's just too much of a distance and it's better for the region to stay with themselves and develop their own competition? Yeah, I understand the desire, especially for Mexico fans to get back in the Libertadores. And I understand the Libertadores desire to expand in this country and make some American dollars. Um, but at the same time, you look at the distances. I think that one thing that coronavirus pandemic has, has reminded us is travel is not always easy. And I think, you know, unfortunately, we had a, a very serious reminder of that not too long ago as well with the Chapecoense disaster. Mm. And when you're talking about teams, you know, it's entirely feasible, although not the way they're playing right now, but it's entirely feasible that like the Vancouver Whitecaps qualify for Libertadores and then they have to fly to Buenos Aires. Well, that's, a, that's you know, I, I, it's a long, long way. You know, you're talking about, the equivalent of having an English team fly to India, right? So mm -hmm. um, it's not it's not super feasible to me to have that sort of play, at least in the current environment. Now, if you said, okay, we're going to take the top four teams from the Libertadores, the top four teams from the CONCACAF Champions League, and we're going to play a tournament in Miami, that would work, right? You could make that work, you know, something like that. So mm -hmm. I do think the regions are sort of, the Americas are sort of making uh, flirtatious eyes at each other. And, and I get that, right? And I understand the alert from both sides. I would love to see that continue to, to kind of grow. But at the same time, you do wonder in some of these tournaments, it's often the local fans who lose. You know, if I'm, a, if I'm an Atletico Nacional fan in Colombia, I probably don't have the budget to, to follow my team throughout the Libertadores and then hop a plane to Miami to watch this new tournament, right? So I think there's a balance there. But uh, as we've seen so many times in, in, in our game, uh, often the balance is tipped by, uh, by wads and wads of cash. So if there's money to be made, I bet that they go for it. And, and that's the only way I could really see it working out is if they do some sort of a neutral site tournament. Yeah, that, no, definitely. And, and is there a, a country in the region um, that, that, that kind of stands out to you that's doing all the good stuff, whether it's Honduras or Costa Rica? Is there a, a country that you kind of see that is making some moves to really develop and progress the game in their own country? Yeah, I, it's difficult. You know, a lot of those countries are sort of struggling. Costa Rica's been so good for so long. I think that they, you know, are maybe struggling to take the next step. And it's tough because their club game, their players keep getting bought up. So it's tough to have a really robust national league. But that said, I think they'll see the benefits of being open to selling players to leagues like MLS, to leagues like Belgium, to leagues like Mexico. You know, the talent's going to be able to better develop there because you're not a big fish in a small pond. You're fighting for competition. You're fighting for a spot. So I think Costa Rica is doing things the right way. They're in a difficult moment right now. I would also keep an eye on Panama. You know, they made the World Cup. Got, I wouldn't say embarrassed because I think they were just proud to be there, but they didn't have a good tournament. And now they're, they're having difficulty. But I think that that generation of players that got Panama to the World Cup, that was able to represent that country on that stage for the very first time, will, will be remembered fondly. And it might take a while, but I think more and more kids will, will turn from baseball, which is 
uh, a powerful sport there, the most popular sport there, and, and start to kick the ball around a little bit and try and be the next Blas Perez or Felipe Baloy or Jaime Pinedo. And then you see Panama back in, you know, five, 10 years. So uh, those two countries, I think, are a bit farther ahead of everyone else in the region, in Central America specifically, just because of the success that they've had recently and, and the, the will to build on that, whether it's political will or the clubs doing the right thing or, or players themselves, you know, Baloy uh, and someone else, I can't remember who, but another World Cup veteran started an academy down in Panama. Great. You know, that's the kind of thing that they're going to need to really take the next step. Mm, yeah, definitely. And, and do you think it's beneficial for these countries? I know uh, Uruguay, like they, they want to get their guys out as quickly as possible to go and play in Europe and other parts of the world because that's, they know that if they stay in the net, their own national leagues, they're, they're not going to develop as quickly. Do you see a lot of players from Central America, but also Mexico as well? Maybe not Mexico because the money's good in Mexico, but are mm-hmm. players coming to the MLS or are a lot of the Central American players also going to Europe as well? Or do you see a lot of transition into the MLS these days yeah i think mls has kind of realized there's an opportunity to scout the best players and you know those guys who are ripping you up in ccl they could just come to mls and rip up other mls teams right and it hasn't always worked out you know like omar brown he's a guy who just moved to israel panamanian player he, he was great in ccl and he didn't really pan out for the montreal impact so you know it doesn't sound like a guaranteed success but i do think they've seen hey this is an opportunity but I think you're seeing Central American players become more talented, honestly, just, just the, you know, from, from an early age, Manfred Ugolde, the Saprissa uh, attacker just sold to Belgium for the City Football Group, their new club in Belgium. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that he's playing at a very high level within three, four years. He's only 18 right now. So those are the kind of things you mentioned Uruguay, like that's the kind of thing they need. But Uruguay also has a, a big advantage in the way that they develop their youth. They bring everyone centralized to Montevideo, which they can do because more than a third of the population lives there, right? And they're able mm-hmm. to have sort of a training center and it's a small enough country to where even if you do live, you know, by the border with Brazil, no problem. You can take a bus ride. It's only four or five hours. You can be with us for the weekend. You can learn the contest we need you to learn and then you can go home. In Central America, you could be doing that as well, but that takes money, right? And, yeah. and you know, the finances just aren't necessarily there for some of these countries. But I do think that they're going to be able to benefit from the smaller size and from the exposure from and not even just like oh costa rica was good at the world cup in 2014 but also just like platforms that we have now that we didn't have even for you know four to eight years ago we're talking about like instat y scout you know expanding uh and, and even like the football blogosphere growing right nowadays and this is different from you know when i started writing about players like if I want to do a scouting report, quote unquote, on a player like Manfred Ugalde, who plays for Saprissa, I would have had to really pull some strings, reach out to contacts in Costa Rica. Hey, can I get some footage? You know, MLS coaches would have had to go physically to scout players in real life. And now you have not only just this proliferation of streaming video, but you also have these services where, you know, like a group like 21st Club, which I wrote about how they partnered with the Canadian Premier League. Those teams don't have the budget to go to these places and figure out which players are available on free transfers, but they can pay this consulting group and that's where they specialize in, right? Or one of the elements that they specialize in. So mm-hmm. I think you're seeing scouting evolve as well, which ultimately will, will be good for the national teams of those countries, if not the players themselves. But I think it'll be good for them too, because now they have an opportunity to go abroad and get into those development systems that should suit them better in the long run. A lot of the, like it's happening here in the US as well, but do, do those countries in Central America, you know, where you would have someone that 
like Pulisic, for example, that is uh, he could play for a multitude of different countries, right? So is there a place in Central America where that, that's the issue as well, where they could say, oh, well, he's from Argentina, but he's playing for Honduras or he's chosen to play for um, Panama instead of uh, Colombia. Is that a, a thing in Central America as well, or is it? Is it not? I mean, it's more the world's more globalized, right? So that people are, are traveling around and moving around more. Is that happening in Central American football, or not so much? I would say that Central American football, in some ways, has been able to be the beneficiary of some of those. Not at the top level, right? Not in a case like, a, oh, you know, Pulisic could represent Croatia, or you know. Uh, uh, Jean, Jean, Jean Jean back in the day where it was like, oh, he could play for five different countries. <laughs> um, but I think a, a lot of times that like, uh, if you're an American college player, for instance, I know that like Panama has, has been pretty aggressive scouting. Okay, who's Panamanian American? And if you're Panamanian American, you're not going to be good enough for the U.S. national team, or maybe you were in a camp, um, you know, four years ago in a U-17 camp, but your career's kind of stalled out. Why don't you come to our national team setup and see if you're good enough, you know? Uh, I've seen Nicaragua do that with players in like the third or fourth division in Spain. So, uh, and, and, and in my region as well, the Caribbean, you know, so many players in England have ancestry, you know, their dad or their grandma or their mom or whoever, their family member was from this island. And this island doesn't have a professionalized league. So if you're a professional player in League Two, for instance, in England, or I, I've got a newsletter coming out on, uh, it should come out hopefully by the time this podcast uh, is released, on a guy named Nick Blackman, who played for Derby, Derby, Count, Derby County. Um, he's at, he was eligible for Israel, he was eligible for England because he was born in, in uh, Manchester. But he was born to a, a dad who's from Barbados. So he this year said, okay, I'm going to go and, uh, and had a close connection with Barbados. He goes, he scores multiple goals in the Nations League. They're promoted from League C to League B. Great. Now you have players who are going to be facing even better competition and who, when they come in, you know, the local players, when they come in and they see that professional player in the locker room, they say, I could do that too, right? So instead of some of the competition for players that you see at the higher levels, I think that the, the sort of overlooking players who didn't make it all the way to the top can benefit some of those national teams. But again, we're not talking about Barbados isn't going to classify for the World Cup, right? But it's an achievement to, to make the Nations League and to try and qualify for the Gold Cup, right? And then can you use that as a trampoline? Making your regional championship for the first time in history, that should also kind of spur on and encourage this younger generation. So that, that's where I would say the kind of quote-unquote battles or, or, or interesting nationality uh, mixes come into play in the countries that aren't the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. So, and to jump back to the the journalist portion of this, so you mentioned previously you would work for Goal. So, for Goal, were you covering Central America as well as uh, North America? Was it uh, one or the other? No, I, my, my my focus was Mexico because, like I said, so uh-huh. many people are interested. Um, in the Mex- Mexico national team specifically, because that's the cultural touchstone for so many Mexican Americans. There's a lot of people who grow up in the U.S. feeling, you know, there's the, the quote in the movie Selena where her dad says we have to be uh, more Mexican than the Mexicans, more American than the Americans. I think I've butchered it, but, you know, it's, it's basically you have to be 100% one and 100% the other. And how do you sort of mesh those together? I think so many people um, have experienced that. When I talk to my readers and when I talk to my friends, who are Mexican-American, that, that, that they express that to me quite often. And so often the, the sort of expression of the Mexican-ness, if you want to say that as a word, the Mexican, so much of the, their expression of being Mexican comes down to the fact that they support El Tri, they support the national team, but they were educated in the U.S. 
They might speak Spanish at home with their parents or grandparents. They might read Spanish, but they might prefer to read in English. So at Go, we found a huge audience of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans who prefer to get their news in English. And we were able to exploit, you know, a market vacancy. There's one other journalist, my friend Tom Marshall at ESPN, who, who also does coverage for a major outlet, right, uh, of Mexico in English. We both see like pretty good success, but it's difficult to convince editors that that market exists because people don't think about it, right? And people don't see it. And even when you show them the numbers, hey, this was really successful. Hey, this got a lot of retweets, whatever. Uh, it's difficult for them to believe that it that it'll carry over. So that's one of the struggles I fight. Um, I did cover Central America and the Caribbean, but it was kind of a fight, right? Even then, like I said, I had open-minded editors to an extent, but you know. Uh, some of the stuff I cover admittedly is quite obscure and quite niche and I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm happy with that. Um, you know, but there are, there are now and then these, these success stories. Like there was uh, when the CONCACAF women's championship happened uh, two or three years ago, I don't know the time is meaningless now, but whenever that happened, I profiled Yenna Bailey, the Panamanian goalkeeper who had been like a big standout in the tournament and no one knew anything about her. She was very, I think she was 17 at the time. And I, you know, was able to, I, I attended a game and as a, as a journalist and after, Hey, can I, can I talk to you real quick and learned her story? She'd been a midfielder like a year before that. Hmm. Like, it was absolutely insane. So, you know, that story I put out, and got retweeted by a bunch of current U.S. women's national team players, and it was the most read story on the entire site for the day, right? And it wasn't breaking traffic records. It wasn't doing better than, you know, Messi scoring a hat trick or whatever. But, you know, those are the kind of stories that I believe in, and I believe there's interest for. It's just about finding them at the right time and packaging them in the right way. So a long answer to say, uh, I did cover a little bit of everything at Gold, but, but the focus was heavily on the Mexico national team in English and, and Liga Mexican English. Yeah, definitely. So um, what's the evolution been like just since you got involved and, and you started your journey in sports journalism up until now? How, how has the game changed and how has it evolved since you've been involved? The game of soccer or the journalism game or both? Oh, both, yeah. That, you, you, your own like, p- part of it. So how has that changed? Ah. How has journalism changed in soccer, do you think? It's weird because I would say that there's probably more money than there's ever been in in football in this region and in media projects, right? But it also seems like that's not necessarily trickling down to the creators. And if that doesn't happen, it's really difficult to keep justifying that, right? I've seen a lot of talented people who are now working in PR or working in something other than sports, which is fine and maybe is more fulfilling for them, I don't know, but uh, because the money hasn't been there. So it's a little bit demoralizing. Like I said, you know, like it was Tom and I doing Mexico and English coverage. I left gold to go freelance and, you know, now it's pretty much just Tom. Like they didn't replace someone to do Mexico coverage. Mm-hmm. I think there's a real opportunity for, I don't know, someone with money, I guess, if someone's listening to this, uh, but even, you know, and, and I think also the readers have to realize that like we do need support. We do need people showing that they care, clicking the articles. And I think you see some movements, right? Like women's soccer coverage is growing for sure, which is great. The Athletic has a full-time writer covering women's soccer. Uh, there's some very talented freelancers who are able to, you know, it looks like make a pretty good living, mostly covering women's soccer. That's very exciting, but we need more outlets to commit to that. We need, need more people to, to recognize the number of fans. And I think it's the same on, on the kind of regional coverage, right? You know, people do care about the Mexican league. People do care about the Mexican national teams. But uh, it, it seems like editors are very reluctant, I guess, to to give it a shot. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's changed. Obviously, social media and Twitter, how it's evolved has changed. Some good, some bad. You know, you're seeing people get platforms that never would have gotten attention before. 
you're able to see, like I said, you know, the, the scouting element, you know, that changes for journalism too, right? Now it's so easy to find information that you need or, or to get in touch with people, right? Like I can, I can just drop into a player's, it's not my favorite way to get in touch with someone, but I can drop into a player's DMs. Hey, you know, would you be interested to chat? That kind of thing, you know, again, not, not, not standard operating procedure, not what you learn in journalism school, but like you do have that access now that you didn't previously have. And the players have access too. They can say whatever they want. And, and I think they've mostly taken great advantage of that when you look at, you know, the Black Lives Matter, not just in the U.S., on jerseys in the Premier League, on wristbands and T-shirts and in the Bundesliga. That doesn't happen if the players don't kind of take advantage and understand what platform they have. So I think the changes, I don't know. I mean, I think they'll continue. I think it's going to, uh, I do think you see sort of a, a oneness that's happening sort of big media groups are able to control even more and they might take a chance on something and might not and if they don't you're kind of not out of luck but you know you're, you're you're left with fewer options but at the same time i think there's also that inspiration that comes with the fact that really anyone's voice can potentially be heard in, in the ecosystem we have and do you think that that's like echoed by U.S. soccer fans just asking for a bit more from sports journalism just as far as the depth of stories goes? Do you see that there is an appetite for that kind of thing here in the U.S.? I think so. I mean, I think when you look at, at people who make a commitment, it seems like it's tough because no one wants to talk about money. No one wants to talk about budgets. When you look at a, an outlet like The Athletic, you know, it looks like their commitment to soccer in this region is paying off. People, anytime that someone writes a story on The Athletic, it seems like that sets the narrative that day. That's what people are talking about. But I do think that fans are are starting to ask for that even more, and I think they should, right? It should transcend. Hmm. Um, that, that sort of, I, I'm mentioning, you know, like, okay, an athletic story comes out and it sets the debate for that day, but it's really just soccer Twitter, right? It's not on ESPN. It's not on Fox, you know. Yeah. Um, I've literally got ESPN going right now and they've got, you know, a coach, an NFL coach agreeing to a contract extension. Okay, sure. that People do care, right? And more people probably care about that than care about the MLS game that happened this morning at, at whatever ungodly hour they played it at. But at the same time, I think when you talk about some of the bigger picture stuff, you know, Pulisic is a great example. Uh, people care about that too, right? And I think that it's totally fair to ask that not only is that kind of part of your steady diet of American sports news, mm. but also that people who know what they're talking about are are st- are, 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 are in those discussions, right? Mm. You know, I, I, I've seen a lot about, well, is Pulisic the best U.S. soccer player ever, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like people who aren't even remembering to mention the names. And maybe you think he's better than these guys. That's totally fine. This is not the argument I've seen people make. But it's like, you didn't mention Landon Donovan. You didn't mention Clint Dempsey. You know, you're not mentioning any of these people. And it's like, well, how can you kind of hold yourself up as a voice that that that's speaking knowledgeably about u.s soccer when it's not even clear that you have been following for more than two weeks and i'm not trying to gatekeep right if you want to get into the game welcome aboard right but i do think it's a little you know if you're going to be on espn talking about it uh i'd like to see a little little more heft and i think fans are asking for that and i think they're right Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And it's good to see as well. So um, to bring it like uh, up to a bit more current speed, the MLS is in the middle of their tournament right now. What, what's your thoughts on just uh, kind of how the tournament's gone so far from what you've seen? And uh, just overall, I know it's a little bit of a broad question, but sort of the, the status of MLS at large as a domestic league here? Yeah, it's interesting because I think you see the good and bad of MLS with this tournament. Um, they've been able to 
pull off an event, uh, which was dicey at first. Mm -hmm. And they've been able to engage their audience. I think that soccer nerds, soccer Twitter, myself, very much included, you know, I say that lovingly and soccer nerds can sound mean, but you know, that's me, right? Soccer nerds like me have been engaged in the tournament. We've been chatting about it. We've been watching it. But at the same time, you look at the TV ratings, which is one of MLS's biggest struggles right now because they need that next TV deal to be big money. Uh, they're not good. You know, it doesn't seem like they're, they're really getting a lot of pickup again, outside of the, the little soccer nerd market that they already have cornered. So I think it's, you know, it's an interesting sort of balance because they at one, it's almost like making a new Star Wars movie where you like have to have some fan service, right? Where it's like you have to have something for the hardcores because you're going to piss them off and they're going to leave and they're the ones who go to the stadium. They're the ones who, who, who buy the jerseys. They're the ones who are there. But I, I do think they need to figure out a way to bring in more people. The tent needs to be bigger, uh, quite frankly, because right now the numbers are not really impressive enough I think to, to have a TV exec, which I am not, so I could be totally wrong, but I, I just don't think they, they're enough to convince uh, TV executives to spend big the next time around. And if that doesn't happen, I think you're looking at, at, a, at a situation where MLS will be limited in the way that it can grow. So um, that, that's maybe too broad of a conclusion to draw from a tournament that they're having during the coronavirus pandemic, but that, that's kind of my met, mega, mega takeaway, I guess. Do you think, unless it's like from a relative outsider looking in, you know, I watch the MLS, I follow it and, and watch the games, but I, I don't particularly have a team that I support being from a different country. You know, I, I'll support Phoenix Rising, which is our local team in the USL. But in the MLS, do you think that, like I'm just thinking of the newer teams that have come in, like LAFC or, or Beckham's new team. Do you think that the attempt there is to get a market outside of Miami, let's say? So, okay, so can someone in... Atlanta support they've got their own team obviously but like would they support um, a different team in a different market is that the problem is that MLS teams are going to struggle to cross over and, and reach a new market outside of their existing fan base maybe I think that one of the biggest issues is that in some of the biggest cities you have what I've called in the past the inertia of suck mm -hmm. um, so you look at Dallas Chicago Colorado Boston, right? Denver, Colorado, Boston. These are markets where they've always been. Chicago came in in 98, but the others founded the league in 1996. Mm -hmm. And they're owned by NFL owners not anymore in the case of Chicago. Chicago's going to be a really interesting test study because they're trying to do something different, right? But you saw these teams follow the same path. They're still not wanting to spend big money. They're still not resonating with fans in their local community. And a lot of it just seems to be because for years they sucked. Not necessarily on the field, right? Some of them did mm -hmm. suck on the field as well. But like a lot of them were just not good at connecting with the fans, at marketing, at building, even the, you know some of the stadiums that they built are nice facilities, but are not necessarily located in a place where the fan is, where we've realized now, and they didn't know, it's hindsight is 2020 on this, but like we realize now that your customer is generally young people, young people with some disposable income who are more likely to be fans of soccer because the demographics say young people love soccer in this country, old people do not care. So, you know, you have those huge markets and if you could imagine the, the sort of, imagine the buzz that Atlanta gets in Chicago, right? And even LAFC is a great example. The Galaxy for a long time, and I think they've done better than some of the teams I mentioned, but for a long time, you know, there's not a lot of buzz around the Galaxy. They don't feel like the, the LA team. They don't feel like the team of 
the, what LA actually looks like, you know, 50% Latino, young city, growing city, uh, population to the east and to the north getting bigger, you know, the suburbs to the south, eh, maybe, maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. LAFC comes in and they immediately represent them from day one, and it works. And they're also good on the field, which doesn't hurt. But they come in with a smart marketing plan. They come in with a star player like Carlos Vela. They come in with a winning style of soccer. It might be the same way. You know, Tata Martino is the first ever coach of the team. They sign big name players, not even big name players, just good players from South America. Mm-hmm. They win right away. They create the atmosphere, the branding is right, and it works. So I think that that's more MLS's problem than not being in enough markets because I think that like the casual fan who lives in, now there's so many teams, which is great, but I was going to try and pick a city. I was going to say Nashville. Well, Nashville has a team, but like the casual fan who lives in Charleston, South Carolina, right, who watches every single Carolina Panthers game, they watch all the the uh, the NBA games they can, they can get their fill of, they – I think resonate with Atlanta, even though they're not living there, right? Even though there's no team there, I think they still say, oh, wow, that's really cool what they do in Atlanta. And they're more likely to become neutral fans of, of the league mm-hmm. uh, just because it's cool, right? And it works and people love it. But I think as long as you have these huge markets where people aren't engaged, there's always going to be this sort of gulf between the haves and the haves nots. And it'll be interesting to see which camp Miami falls in. You know, you'd expect them to succeed almost no matter what because of the names that are backing them, the the, the marketing experience that so many of the people around that group have, uh, the connections that they're able to trade on. You know, and I do wonder if they'll kind of become like the international team. Uh, I think a lot of attention is being paid in Latin America just because um, Latin America, you know, I've called Miami in the past, like the capital of Latin America. It's so international there. And you have so many South Americans who are like, you know, maybe they have a relative there. They're just plugged into what's happening in Miami. Then you have the Beckham connection. So I think a lot of uh, British people are paying attention, obviously English people. And, and uh, I do wonder, you know, like their success or lack thereof could be really critical to growing the league internationally. But we talk domestically. I really do think it's about getting all the local markets to the level of some of the teams. And I don't know how you do that because you're not kicking out those owners who helped you found the league, but you do need them to kind of get themselves in gear. Right. Do we, do we need promotion and relegation, John? Is that what, is it what's missing from the final piece of the American jigsaw puzzle? I, I, I'm in two minds about it. Right. For a long time, I thought the time isn't right. And that's in part, you know, I think a lot of times people go, oh, you don't understand like the history. It's because I do. I have been around for the history. You know, I, I lived in Phoenix for a while. I watched the Phoenix Wolves. I don't know if you're in town or remember that, but uh, yeah. they, they, they didn't have anything. I mean, they had a team and those guys tried hard, but like the finances weren't there. Mm-hmm. The marketing wasn't there. The stadium wasn't there. And now you have a group in, in Phoenix Rising that, yeah, like they could absolutely be an MLS team. But for so long, it's it's been difficult to to see that those those plans, those strategies. I also cover Mexico, right, where their quote unquote is promotion and relegation, although it's on hold right now. And I've seen a lot of teams, even though you only relegate one team a year, and it's the worst team over the past six seasons. So it's incredibly forgiving. I've seen a lot of teams go down and fold, and I don't think that's a healthy soccer ecosystem either. You know, one of the things that I think is holding Mexican soccer back, and they're trying to address this in a weird way, but uh, is the lack of a strong second division. I'm sure you're familiar with the, you know, English World Cup team of 2018. And I I don't know what the exact number is. Maybe you do. But I think like between 18 and 20 of those guys had experience in the championship or League One, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have a place like that right now where we can have our young players develop really in MLS. 
And Mexico certainly doesn't have that, even though they have kind of a glut of potential youth talents. So I, I think that until you have a really robust second division, it could be, it's not right. It doesn't work. But ProRail could work if the USL championship continues to grow in the way that it's growing. So like I said, I mean, I, I'm in two minds about it. And I know people like ProRail supporters are going to say, I sound wishy-washy. That's fine. I can take it. But I, I, I just think it could be the right time. It could not be. I, I struggle to see it happening, right? When you have every time an owner pays more money to come into the league, it becomes that much more difficult to say, hey, it's possible your investment is going to be worth next to nothing overnight because your team didn't do well enough. That's not attractive to new owners. And that's what MLS is sort of trading on right now is this sort of sexy new club smell. We, we had Jake Edwards on the show recently of the USL and, mm-hmm. and, and we talked about uh, the potential for promotion relegation between their own divisions. And he said it is something that there's like serious discussions about. So do you see the USL becoming uh, like viable enough and enough interest behind that, that it becomes almost like uh, not as popular or more popular than the MLS because of the marketing machine that's behind the MLS. But do you see it as being coming kind of like the, the rock and roll to the MLS is more like corporate or, or do you think that the USL is uh, may, may be a little bit more um, along the same lines as the MLS, if you will? No, I, I could see it happening and not necessarily. And I think they're doing a nice job and not because of anything they're doing, but because of the cities that are involved. Like when you look at a lot of those cities, the major league cities, right? Phoenix mm-hmm. is certainly one. I think Memphis is intriguing. There are some cities where you could say, well, I don't know, like Colorado Springs. Okay, that's clearly a town where you like put a minor league baseball team in there, put a minor league soccer team yeah. in there. Yep, that's good, right? They're too close to Denver to really have like Rio, else. Rio, but I think Grande, you, Rio Grande, I think, has a team, right? It's kind of a small town. yeah. Yeah, although they're doing well too, right? Like that's the thing is some of these groups are doing things the right way. And so you do look and you say, well, maybe, I don't know. So I definitely think that El Paso is another one. You could have, if you make El Paso, it already is a soccer town, right? It's a border town, shares with Juarez. They have Liga Mekis to compete with, but those guys are kind of, you know, happy family in some ways. So, you know, I think there's so many, we could keep doing this, Louisville, right? We could, Mm -hmm. you know. Pittsburgh, you know, the Riverhounds or whatever, but like Pittsburgh is a major league city. You already have a baseball and an NFL team there. There's so many cities in the U.S. that could support soccer teams if they're done right and are supporting them in some cases, you know, some of the cases we just mentioned. So I could see the, the you know, especially if you kind of add that element of, oh, could Madison go up to the top division? Oh, no, is Pittsburgh, not this year, they look great, but like is Pittsburgh going to drop down and be a, a quote-unquote third division city you know i could see that happening and i just think it's weird to say but i also think it's great for the game because you know so much like i said i didn't really come into contact with football regularly until i was like 13 i went to games when i was little little but it wasn't like something i did every weekend right but if you had had a you know if i lived in a city where i had an opportunity to go to the stadium every weekend and that club has programs to get kids playing not not academy yes academies needed and yes we're doing things there i'm talking about just like learn to kick like learn what's moving into space means right like clinics just little stuff if clubs are involved and get kids playing then i think we really are looking at something that could be different in this country right and, and i think that if you're active in some of those cities you're going to produce more Clint Dempsey's. You're going to produce more Christian politics. And you look at the background of those guys and they're not from big cities, right? And, but they, some of them had, they had to go from big, you know, big, big distances to train, to be coached. If you can bring that coaching to those cities and the potential Dempsey's and the potential politics, 
I think you're looking at a really exciting ecosystem. And I definitely think, to answer your question, USL could be a big part of that. Yeah, definitely. This is fascinating. I could talk about this all day, man. It's really interesting. So do you think that that's what maybe just some of the clubs have done that are being successful? Do you think it is a grassroots approach and like kind of organic inside the community? Is that why even in like at the higher end, like LAFC and Atlanta United have done such a good job of, of creating a strong fan base? Is it because of the grassroots efforts that they put in, do you think? I think so. When you talk about, you know, earlier we talked about why I love telling football stories. But I think what separates a, a, a soccer team, I, I, I play fast and loose with football versus soccer. It's doing too much English radio. <laughs> the, the, what separates a soccer team from an NBA team? I love the Mavericks. I live, I live in Dallas. I've been a Mavs fan for years. It was one of my favorite sports memories when they won the title. Dirk, absolute legend. Luke is my, my background, right? Luke is my wallpaper. Mm-hmm. I love the Mavericks. But they don't, you don't have the same feeling of the Mavericks representing your city. Lucas from Slovenia, Dirk was from Germany, mm. Chris Stapps is from Latvia. A, a soccer team has that same international flair as well. But when you look at, you know, I don't need to explain this to you, Adam, growing up in England, you know, you look at these English clubs and like Liverpool represents Liverpool or, mm-hmm. you know, Everton as well. But like, it depends on which side, but yeah, that's you, right? That, that club represents who you are and it represents your city. If soccer teams in the U.S. are going to claim to do the same thing, they have to be involved in their communities. And I think you see the success or lack of success with clubs who have tried to get involved. I think grassroots, you know, it can be almost a buzzword. People have like in their titles, you know, director of grassroots marketing or whatever. But it's important to pay attention to that because I do think that's where Atlanta had success. It starts from the bottom and, 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 and you know, they really did lay the groundwork. And I think that's so necessary, right? A lot of things went right. But yeah, I mean, I really do think if your club is not connected with community in the US, it's just not going to, there's no reason for people to leave to pay attention to you instead of their NFL team or their MLB team or whatever competition you have in that market. So in in USL, it becomes all the easier, right? If you're forward Madison, your only competition is Wisconsin College Athletics. And then like if people are driving to Milwaukee to Chicago, so you have a big advantage. But if you don't, do things, you know, if you don't do what they've done and market well and be smart and understand, oh, people in this city like to set up plastic flamingos. Cool. That's going to be part of our identity, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't put your arms around the community and truly be involved and truly understand what makes this different from what makes Madison different from Milwaukee. I don't know the answer. I've never been to either one, but they did. They did the research. They know, right? Atlanta the same way. I think they have an identity and they've become kind of a club that all Atlanta can root for, even though it's a city of transplants. I, I came from, you know, I'm from Chicago. I'm from Florida. I'm from this, but I come to work for Home Depot or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now I can support Atlanta United because they're new and they represent new Atlanta. They represent me, right? So I think that community aspect is so critical. It's also hard. That's why not every club does it. That's why not everyone succeeds in getting fans is because it's not easy to actually create that community because you actually have to create it. You actually have to do the work. But I think it's absolutely a crucial component to finding success, especially in the smaller markets. Yeah, that definitely. Look, we, we could talk about this all day, man. It's really interesting. We're going to have to have you back on. But before we let you go, just tell us a little bit about your current project. So you're freelancing now after your time at goal. So tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment before we let you go. 
Yeah, I've got a newsletter that's called Getting CONCACAF. I always say if you understand the joke, this newsletter is for you. Uh, sign up. It uh, <laughs> comes to your inbox usually twice a week. Um, and it's just stories from the region. Uh, sometimes it's just a column, like, a, you know, even touching on some of the discussion we've had. I did, a, I did one last week on a couple Central American players who are kind of the, the big hope for their country. You know, we know about Pulisic and Alfonso Davies and Raul Jimenez, but who are the players that are in Europe that are, that are exciting Panama or, or exciting even Guatemala? Um, you know, that's in there. I did a story on a guy named Miguel Coley. He's a coach, assistant coach. Uh, he's Jamaican, but he lives in the UAE right now. He coached in Iran and he writes poetry. Um, so I called him the poet laureate of CONCACAF and was able to kind of share his story, how he went from literally coaching. It wasn't, it was like four or five years ago that he was coaching uh, what they call schoolboy teams, you know, college uh, teams in Jamaica. And now he's an assistant coach and uh, playing in the Asian Champions League, you know, but the team playing in the Asian Champions League. I basically try and find those obscure stories about the CONCACAF region. So if that sounds interesting to you, uh, there's more where that came from. Um, and that's the biggest, you know, kind of driver I have right now. And then you can also find my work all over the internet, all sorts of different places. So that's what I'm up to. Cool. And where can people get catch up with you on social media, like Twitter? And I don't know if you're doing stuff on Instagram or not. Yeah, I, I tweet way too much. It's at Arnold, comma, C-O-M-M-A, John, J-O-N. There's no H. Uh, same name on Instagram, but I try, I try and keep that kind of person, not personal, like I'm putting stuff up that's like, ooh, that's secret. But like, you know, I, I'm not, don't follow me there for soccer. If you want to see when the pandemic's not happening, I, I put a lot of concert pictures, a lot of tacos. So that, that's your thing. Go ahead and hit the Instagram. If you just want the soccer stuff, Twitter's where to be. I think there's some like hybrid business model in there for you with like soccer. Like, can you travel and review the tacos in soccer towns in the world? Like that, like that, that would be pretty cool I, to go to Mexico and do so like a, a piece on that. Pre-pandemic, I had some interesting discussions that I'm hoping will, will pop up again. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how much I'm like allowed to say or not, but like basically the idea was like, why don't we do, I don't know if you ever watched like the vice guide to travel uh -huh. back in the day, they would go to these like very dangerous places. It was not dangerous to go see a game in, in Monterrey or in Guadalajara, but you know, you do have to have that sort of game day experience. And you got to know where to go. So hopefully, hopefully once, uh, once we kick this virus out, um, we'll be able to do some projects like that. And, and yeah, my Twitter will be the best place to find it. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure I'll still be wasting too much time on there in 2020, 2021. So give, give me a follow. And, uh, and if that project materializes, that's where you'll find it. There's, there's definitely a market for that food and football crossover, mate. I think that'd be interesting, especially like the, some of the English listeners or uh, expat listeners will be interested in hearing about like the pasty scene in Pachuca, for example. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, go on, sorry. Yeah. There, I mean, even like, even like, uh, like, you know, Guadalajara is like tequila town because it's, you know, tequila, literally the city of tequila is right there. Right. Like there's a, one of the best bar, bars for mezcal and like other agave spirits, like uh, Raistia, all these different things, you know, the, there's like a big scene for that too. And those are the kind of things I, I, I would love to explore. So hopefully fingers crossed, we'll be traveling again here in six months or whatever. And, and, uh, and I can bring that to people. But until then, uh, you're stuck with getting CONCACAF newsletter and, and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that's great, man. Well, we hope to get you back on again soon, John. And we appreciate you coming on today, mate. It was really interesting. And uh, thanks again for coming on. My pleasure. All right, that's it. It's full time, the end of today's show. We will be back on Tuesday with myself and Mr. Thomas Hurdle talking the usual rubbish about football and life in general. Thanks to everyone again for listening and for John for coming on the show. We will see you all soon. Be safe, be well, and till next time. <laughs>